Welcome to On the Up and Up. I'm your host, Kira LaForgia, and every week I'm bringing you behind the scenes of running a successful business. Join me while we laugh, learn, and connect on mostly HR inappropriate topics with successful founders, diverse leaders, and kick-ass employees. It's true, your HR lady may have fired your bestie or made you sign a love contract, but we also have all the hot gossip that will make you better at your job. Whether you're on your way up the corporate ladder, are a fellow HR villain, or are building a culture as a rising entrepreneur. I have the best guest today, and in just the last couple minutes in planning out our episode, we covered so much in just like our plan, so I know that this is going to be action-packed. So whether you're tuning in to listen to On the Up and Up today to hopefully get some support in managing and developing your team, or if you are just looking to relate to a fellow service provider that's trying to break the status quo in the way that you deliver your services. This episode really is going to touch on all of those things. So while we're going to start out talking about something really niche and specific with Dr. Tay today, we're really going to branch out into how we can use that basis of knowledge to talk about the work environment that we're providing and talk about really relevant topics along the way. So I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Taylor Day, who is a licensed psychologist with expertise in the early diagnosis and intervention of autism. She has a PhD, literally so impressive, in clinical psychology, and her own private practice is centered around the whole family approach, a process Dr. Tay has founded and perfected over the years. Dr. Tay specializes in working with autistic children and their families and uses a combination of evidence-informed principles along with her personal expertise with an autistic brother to provide neurodivergent affirming care. So normally we don't go right off into, tell me everything about your like previous traumas, um, but we always start out our guest episodes trying to get a feel for you know, you as a business owner, but also you as a person, your villain origin story. So we try to joke and reframe HR. We're not villains. We're not everybody's hated people, you know, all of that good stuff. But especially entrepreneurs, we are the HR people in our business. So tell us a little bit about your villain origin story and how you got here, Dr. Tay. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to be able to dive into this. So yeah, I'll take us way back. I mean, you kind of hinted at this, but I grew up with a brother who was diagnosed with autism at 23 months of age. And he, I was 12 at the time. We're 10 years apart. And, you know, so autism became part of my world pretty quickly. And I knew that that was going to shape my trajectory. I think there was never a question about that. I knew I wanted to do something with autistic children and helping them to get the support they need. But then it definitely evolved over time. And I think that one of the things is I did not expect to be an entrepreneur, like whatsoever. It it kind of – I don't want to say it fell in my lap because that's not true. I definitely – had a lot of intentionality in creating it. But if you had told me a couple years ago that I would be running this private practice, I would have literally laughed at you. I would have been like, there is no way. And a large part of that is because when I got into the autism field, I knew I wanted to do research. And so I went into academia and basically graduated with my PhD in 2020, by the way, in the middle of the pandemic. Like I had worked six years for this degree, just real quick story. And I literally 
was graduating from my parents' couch. And I was just so angry about that. And you get hooded (laughs) as a doctorate. And my mom tried hooding me and she got it all wrong. And I was so mad at her, which why would she know how to do this? Like it's some like academic ritual. But I think that also speaks to as as funny as that is. And I was so angry. I I like feel really bad. Like I yelled at my mom and that wasn't fair. But I think it also speaks to the nature of my business and how it came about because I was so identified with being an academic and this high achieving and always what's next that honestly, when the pandemic hit, also some personal growth stuff, I started to realize like I'm not finding joy in this anymore. And so I made a huge pivot. I left academia, decided to launch my own private practice, was terrified of this idea of clinical work because I was like, everyone seems miserable doing it. And yet then I realized, wait, being an entrepreneur, I can set the terms and the condition and set it up the way that I wanted to. So that's kind of how everything came about. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because there's so many parallels in in what you were talking about, Um with I think a lot of our listeners and other entrepreneurs experiences is just that desire to be creative, but still to continue to pursue what you found to be your passion. So I think it's really cool that you discovered or you always knew that this was the the direction you were going to go in. And then you kind of got there and were like, oh, wait, like, this is what I've been working for and planning for my whole life. Like, I I don't want to settle for this. And that is not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. That's why not everybody decides to go out and start a business and be an entrepreneur and pursue the life that they want. Um, so what were some of the – and also, I totally relate to yelling at your mom. Um, so <laughs> – Um, in that, you know, I mean, first of all, I didn't even know that kids could be diagnosed with autism that early on 23 months old. And that was, you know, a while ago. So what, like, what was that like? That feels like it was like, really, I don't know. I mean, that was a long, I mean, not saying you're old or anything, but like, that was a long time ago that you were 12 years old and this was happening. And I feel like that's still something that comes up today where I'm like, wait, you already have a diagnosis? Like, that's so interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and like kind of what that experience was like as a big sister? Yeah. So just to put this like explicitly, that was two decades ago. It was over two (laughs) decades ago. Um, So that was completely unheard of. My brother actually, his birthday is in a couple days. He's turning 24. Um, And so the the biggest thing is to know now – Yes, kids can be diagnosed really, really young. So there's research to actually support that we can start making diagnoses at 12 months of age and then by 14 months of age that those diagnoses are stable, meaning if we make the diagnosis – you know, of course, there there's always exceptions. Nothing is perfect. But large, large, largely speaking, is that if we make the diagnosis at 14 months, that it truly is autism. And so, and this is where not all providers will do it. Many still to this day, you know, I get parents all the time that we're told, well, you have to wait and see. Like, you know, you can't diagnose until they're three. You can't diagnose till they're school age. And that is absolutely not true, but not all providers will do this early diagnosis. So that was actually a focus of my PhD was to do these the 
earliest diagnoses. And I spent, you know, years upon years learning from people who had this specialty. And now it's my specialty myself, although I'll absolutely still diagnose school-age kids as well. But Circling back to the original question, you know, I think that one of the things, and I think parents still have to do this today, is my mom was a huge, huge advocate. She had no problem being like, no, I'm concerned about my kid and you're going to listen. And, you know, I think in some ways that was what needed to happen. So my brother was diagnosed. This is different diagnostic criteria than now, but what was called PDD-NOS, Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified, which is what they kind of gave diagnostically to like soften the blow, to be honest with you. Like back then, that was kind of the mindset. That's not the mindset now, you know, and I think we can be supportive in helping parents to understand how their child's brain is wired and that differences don't mean that there's something wrong. But back then, that was the mindset. But my, um, he also, the provider also wanted to diagnose him with mental retardation as well. And my mom literally was like, no, you're going to give us the autism diagnosis. We're not taking the MR diagnosis. And the reason was she's like, he doesn't have MR. Like, I know that. And she was right. He doesn't have MR, you know, but Mm -hmm. it, it, it was that was the status quo back then, right? But she right. was willing to push against the grain a little bit. And so I think, you know, in some ways, to me, there was my mom being this really big advocate was everything that I always knew. I think it was more of a shock, to be honest with you, when I started getting into the field and realizing how much pushback parents are getting, how much parents aren't being heard in this, this process. And it's like, that doesn't make any logical sense to me. And I tell parents this all the time. I say, listen, I might have a specialty in autism, you know, and early child development, but listen, you're the expert of your child. You are the one that absolutely knows your child the best. And so you need to be part of this conceptualization. I talk about diagnostic evaluations all the time. It's a collaboration. Yes, I'm coming in as the professional and saying, you know, is this child meeting diagnostic criteria for autism, but I need the parent in this and I want the parent to also feel heard. And so I think for me, that that was the bigger thing, almost realizing that that wasn't the status quo, what I experienced as a child and realizing that created a beautiful path for advocacy and creating a better process for families. I literally just realized like, I've been so entrenched in listening to what you were saying that I like forgot this was an interview. Like I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my gosh, tell me more. And then I was like, oh, it's my turn to ask something. Crap. Here we go. No, but I just I think it is so like just knowing you, having worked with you, having helped you to develop your team or played a small role in in how you are kind of breaking these boundaries in business, hearing how your mom really set the tone to advocate for your brother, it I would absolutely describe you to other people, to friends with kids that might have these needs, you know, whatever, advertise your business, advertise your programs as you are the ultimate advocate for just, I mean, what, what would we call it? Just like autism in general. Well, you've told me neurodivergent affirming care. Like you are consistently advocating for the people that you are helping the families and the kids. And that must be 
as you're talking about this, that must be unusual for people to find a provider that they don't have to step in to advocate for their kids and to just be heard by how you're serving your clients. Have you noticed that in the way that you're kind of serving the parents through your coaching or serving the kids through therapy? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it was a really intentional thing. So thank you. I'm glad I'm like (laughs) delivering what I intend to deliver. But here's the thing that I do think is an important framework. I don't think that these other providers are intentionally not doing it or saying like, I don't care. It's that to be really frank, our medical system is broken. And the way that, I mean, health insurance drives a lot of the decision-making and the way things are set up, you know, these other providers, if they're in a, a medical system, a private practice of some sort that isn't kind of thinking of this, like, this quality care, they they might not have the capacity to you know, focus on the quality because the quantity is being driven so strongly behind the scenes. And, you know, I work with parents all the time and I I feel horrible that they're experiencing this. And honestly, it took me a bit too to realize, actually, this was like a transformation in grad school. I remember one of my supervisors saying, I went to grad school at Florida State in Tallahassee and she's like, Taylor, you can't fix Tallahassee's autism problem. And what she meant by that is I was constantly being like, oh yeah, I can help out. I can help out. I can help out. And I wanted to overextend myself. And while I still like, I still do that, you know, I have to be mindful of it, but it's like, I'm not going to fix the systems issue. And yes, you know, working to think about ways that I can help to contribute to that is important, but the my locus of control is within my business and what I provide and doing it differently. Um, and so I'm constantly pivoting and changing and being like, you know, what needs to be done today, whether that's – I literally – in my therapy services in particular, um, integrate care coordination as part of the, the, so to speak, package I bill on monthly retainers. I have no problem. I'll pick up a call, a phone and call a pediatrician and be like, listen, this child's anxiety is really bad. Can we collaborate together on potentially increasing the SSRI, like the anti-anxiety medication? Or I was on an IEP meeting, um, which is basically how a child receives specialized services at school. I was on an IEP meeting this morning, you know, being the one to be like, okay, we need to consider how is this child masking at school? This child is so bright and we also need to make sure that this child is getting their needs supported. And so it's one of the things that I've intentionally built in. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I know masking is a big conversation topic right now in the neurodivergent communities. And I recently heard that they've kind of taken the autism spectrum and encompassed or encapsulated ADD, ADHD along that same spectrum? Or I don't know if that was recent or something that's come up recently. But in I know that entrepreneurs, there's a really high rate of neurodivergent people that become entrepreneurs. So for those that are listening, can you speak a little bit about that spectrum as a whole and also how masking can show up even in adults or in kids or you know to our to our listeners that have children that may be thinking oh my gosh this is hitting the nail on the head for the type of support i've been looking for can you just kind of like go off about some of that stuff cuz it's been really helpful to to hear that in your content 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I want to caveat right away is, you know, I am not neurodivergent. And so I'm hearing about this through listening to neurodivergent individuals themselves. So I'm more than happy to be able to share this information. And I also want to remind us all that it's really important that we're going back to the source to learn. So I'm talking with parents all the time of, yes, I'm providing this diagnosis. Yes, I'm providing these therapeutic services. But we also need to be listening to autistic voices of what their lived experience is like. Um, and I've learned so much by by doing that. And so with, with regard to like the spectrum, so right now the, the way that it's diagnosed is called autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, it really is this wide variety of symptoms. These symptoms or traits can show up in different ways, in different combinations. They can impact people in different ways. So it's not just this idea of, and this is outdated language, but a lot of times you would hear like high-functioning autism and low-functioning autism. It's not that. It truly is like within each trait, you know, there can be so much variability, but even by the day, for example. Um, So let me give a concrete example of this. So, you know, we might have a child or an adult. I don't diagnose adults, but this is something listening to colleagues talk about a lot where it's like maybe their sensory regulation needs you know, they need a lot more support in that area. And so that could look like, you know, in terms of being an, um, an employer, asking, you know, what are some of those accommodations that that are needed in the office or allowing a neurodivergent individual to work from home because they have better control of their environment. That might be an example of more support needs are needed versus something like, you know, their ability to be conversational might not have as many support needs or it might be even a strength for them, but it still is all under this umbrella of autism. It's still this full picture. It's still, I say a lot that, and I've reconceptualized this, that autism, thinking about that is how your child's brain is wired, right? The way their brain is wired is autistic. It's not that we get to separate out these difficulties and say, oh, that's the autism, but this is your child for the strengths. It's all part of autism, right? And so I also think that, yes, that's not how the medical model conceptualizes autism, it's very deficit-based. But when we take this like neurodivergent affirming approach, what we see is that all of this makes up the autism and we need to be supporting on that individual level. Um, And just real quick on the masking is basically it's this idea that, you know, and it can be intentional in a cognitive process, but it also can be more of a internal reaction of feeling like their traits aren't either, uh, you know, supported or appreciated and intentionally trying to downplay those support needs in order to fit more neurotypical standards. Gosh, it's just so funny to think about how we as employers or neurotypical people have been wired to adapt or not adapt to people that are not neurotypical, whether they divulge that information to us or there is just you know, something that we're observing in spending time with them, working alongside someone who may have a neurodivergence or something like that. And one of the things that I've always felt really 
kind of lucky to know you about is that I can ask, you mentioned the outdated terminology and I feel like even over the last 10 years, cause you know, most people listen to this podcast know I work with little kids as well. Um, in a swim school setting. And so we've been able to create inclusive programs for the kids. But even the terminology that we use in our training has had to adapt just in the last 10 years. And high functioning, when you think about it, you're like, that's what we've used all these years. But then recently, it's like, I, I think the term is, you're not supposed to use that anymore. You're not supposed to do that. But even in this time, we've had people first, we were identifying people as autistic, and then we weren't supposed to call them autistic and then we were allowed to again and it was kind of like this like I don't know like now I feel like we're othering people and I've always just been kind of afraid to ask like what's allowed what's accepted and what's not and what you've explained is that we have to listen to the people that are neurodivergent the people who are autistic and find out from them not what other people think and what other people are assigning to them as is okay or acceptable and so I think that one one thing that employers do is we have to protect our businesses. And so we forget that it's not really about having to be perfect. It's just about making sure that A, you have the intention, but B, also seeking out the support and help that you need in order to connect with your employees and create these accommodations. Can you talk a little bit about some appropriate terminology to use or how to approach an individual without causing offense to find out more information about their accommodations without assigning a, you know, that they're on the spectrum or making assumptions about people and things like that. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about that and how we can open a dialogue as an employer in that way without kind of hurting someone's feelings? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, take the lead from the individual, right? If they are self-disclosing their neurodivergence, like I actually was doing an interview recently and that was something that was very candid in the interview, was about the neurodivergence and talking about, you know, the love of telehealth because my entire practice is telehealth-based because I can practice in 40 states and how they loved telehealth because they could have their fidget under the table and didn't feel the need to mask when they were first meeting people people. And so, you know, when someone is open like that, take that as a lead and be willing to ask questions as well and, you know, ask, you know, what sort of supports they need. And ultimately, too, just like we ask about what pronouns do you use, you can say, how would you like me to refer to this, you know, if we're talking about it, if it's coming up. Also, I think it's important just because someone discloses their own neurodivergence to you doesn't mean necessarily they want it disclosed to everyone. And so I would have that conversation as well. I will say I find the large majority of neurodivergent individuals, I'd say particularly autistic individuals, I'm seeing more of this acceptance of like, yep, this is who I am, kind of take it or leave it. And I love that. And we don't want to assume. But let's also go under the context, say someone isn't disclosing what you suspect to be potential neurodivergence. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because if we use a human-oriented approach, you know, in HR and in, you know, management and all of that and the way that we're being as employers and seeing the person first – you know, the rest of that doesn't ultimately matter because the way that we see neurodivergent individuals and help them to feel seen and heard is treating them 
like who they are, like an individual and not some label. So that's, I mean, yes, you're going to make mistakes. And I think owning those mistakes is important or even catching yourself and be like, oops, how would you like me to approach this? And then I want to pass on a quick message. So I have a podcast. Kira was on it actually talking about the swim school um, called Evolve with Dr. Tay. But I had um, this guy, Chris. He runs the account Autistic Not Weird. And he talks a lot about um, employment, you know, how to navigate that, all of that. And I loved what he said on the podcast. He said, if you ask, you have to listen. And I was like, oh. And so then he was giving examples too of like, okay, if you're actually asking an individual what they need in terms of accommodations, you have to actually be willing to listen and to pivot and, you know, strategize with them. Yes, maybe financially not everything is possible, but it also can't be like, okay, yeah, I'll take that into consideration. And we also have to give permission for them to be incredibly honest with us and them meaning our our employees because otherwise, and he said this as well, Chris said this as well, that it's not that autistic individuals, you know, don't lie or can't tell the truth, you know. It's ultimately that sometimes masking comes into play. People pleasing comes into play, and then they end up just telling you what you want them to hear, what you want to hear. And so, actually, ask, be willing to listen, and allow it to be a collaboration. I think that's where you start. Yeah, I love that, and I think it is important that people take accountability as leaders, as employers, to understand that this is a responsibility that you're taking on to create a safe and productive space for the people that you employ to do their best work and to step into their best professional selves, whether they're bringing along a diagnosis of neurodivergence or not. Because some of sometimes when we're managing people, you don't need to have a diagnosis of autism to figure out that somebody really, really thrives in a routine. And if you as a manager throw off their routine, regardless if there's a diagnosis that they've divulged to you or not, understanding that need from your employee is going to have the same results. Like you have to take accountability Mm -hmm. and prepare your people to do their best work under the circumstances that you're providing. So in HR, we're you know, trained, so to speak, to react to what people bring us and to basically be fully reactive. And actually, it can be really scary for a person in a position to have all the liability and things like that to go and seek out a way to have a conversation about something that they may feel uncomfortable with that may cause an issue of discrimination that may, you know, kind of bring up topics that you don't necessarily feel like you know how to navigate. And I think that this is such a great example of how actually addressing those things as a person instead of as a, I guess, diagnosis is really what we're trying to do here overall, you know, just seeing people first. And the neurodivergence is interesting because we can arm ourselves with information, tips, tricks, and education if we have something to go deep dive into, you know, but you don't always, you're not just going to make assumptions about people. And sometimes their needs just are their needs and being able to create a space for them to be successful is your job. So in some cases that, that does mean going out and listening to your podcast and under 
understanding the terminology to use or op- like offering a conversation to your team member to invite them into the discussion. Um, but if you're afraid to do that because you've been told that it's discriminatory or you know stuff like that, then we're never going to be able to change the status quo of what's been accepted from HR and from leaders and managers overall. And so I want to kind of segue this right into how you've built a business that does challenge the status quo of therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the functionality of your business and how you've set it up and why you've decided to do it this way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this idea of breaking status quo is so important because as humans, we just default to this mechanism of being like, this is the way that things should be done. And just to touch on that point real quick, Kira, I think that, you know, we live in a very neurotypical world. And so all of our, honestly, a lot of our HR policies are based on neurotypicality, right? And All so, of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and so I think just recognizing that is really, really powerful. And I love being proactive versus reactive. Not always the easiest as an employer. It's scary sometimes to have these conversations. But I also talk with parents all the time, you know, they often come to me in terms of therapy with some something that they want addressed. And I'm like, they're, they're waiting for me to be like, here's the solution. And I'm like, no, no, no. We got to slow down here first. What is actually going on? How do we do a deep dive of this and understand what the function of this is before we're ever trying to do an intervention. And so I think this can be a misconception of therapy is you think you're going to go in and someone's going to tell you what to do. And I do think in the child psychology world, there's a little bit more of that, but it's also like, again, slowing down and seeing the child first. So in terms of breaking status quo, I think that's something, you know, that I highly, highly value is, you know, how do we really understand what's going on? It's easy to be like a kid is being oppositional and it's like, okay, but why are they being oppositional? More often than not for autistic kids, the oppositionality isn't because they want to, right? There's something else going on. And so I love being able to do a deep dive with families. And so I've designed my my therapy side of my business. This is true of the whole business in general, but I think the therapy in particular to really get to know the family. So often therapy is you see your therapist once a week. It's like, you know, what's been going on? How can I help you today? That type of thing. So I've designed it in a way that first and foremost, um, you know, we have typically I I do it as five sessions a month, which are four child-focused sessions and one parent session, which is an anomaly in and of itself. Like, and this isn't just talking to you about your parenting. What are you experiencing? Because your energy, your feelings, your emotions, that is impacting your home ecosystem. And so how can I help to support you in navigating some of what you're going through in order to be able to support your child. So that's what the whole family approach is, is we're focusing on the entire family. We're talking about your non-autistic children. How do you support them in navigating all of this? Also, you know, yes, there are sessions. Usually we're seeing each other once a week, but these sessions are really for us to do deep dives. And in between, you're you're able to – the way that I have it set up right now, which as I continue to hire out, this will have to probably change. But for me, families just text me. They'll text or email me. 
hey, here's what's going on. I had this question come up or my child's having a meltdown right now. Can can you help me navigate this? And they know that it's not an emergency line per se, you know, that I might not respond in the moment. But when it's really fresh, we often can use tools and strategies to be able to provide that support. But also parents aren't having to remember, you know, six days later to be like, oh yeah, this thing happened. And so it's in the moment. And my favorite part of this is I have parents text me like videos or like celebrating like, oh, my kid did this for the first time today. And they don't often have other people that they can share that with because you know, other family members, their friends might not understand what a huge milestone this is. And then the last area I already mentioned, but I do care coordination as part of a standard part of my practice. So again, whether this is integrating with your child's school, pediatrician, other providers, you know, like literally right now before this call, I was you know, detailing out a plan of how the school could support this child. So it's using what we know works for this child, but communicating it in a way that the the school can just be able to pick it up and effectively implement. You know, one thing that you just said that, I mean, I just love that. And one thing that you said that as we're talking about this, it's come up recently in the evolution of my own business. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening are going to relate to this is for a while there was, and when we worked together, we talked about this as well, but we, there's this, there's this kind of underlying messaging, especially in the remote business or online business world, that everything has to be scalable and it has to remove you from as much of these things as possible in order to be successful and build a successful business. And I remember when we were working together and we were talking about how this was going to be something that you could scale, that you could serve more people. That was something that I was like, oh, wow, they're texting you. That is intense. Like that is cray cray. Like how are you, you know, kind of putting all of that together? How are you not burning out. And now, you know, over the course of as my business has developed, there is now safeguards built into our services that create a space for support. And what I've found is that there's a lot less scope creep when people have a way to reach out to you that maybe doesn't look scalable on paper. You know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be, like you mentioned, they're not using this as an emergency line. They're probably not texting you every minute of the day. They're probably not texting you at midnight. But that's not because you don't have that option. That's because you've created a mutually respectful relationship. You've set the boundaries when needed. And you also can provide something that in just 10 seconds of a responsive text has kind of transcended what our expectations are as clients. You know, just those celebrating those little milestones that other people don't understand. And I think as the online business world and service providers get more and more competitive, I would challenge them to look at their businesses in the same way that you are, where you're like, these are the these are the avenues in which people can reach me. And it doesn't necessarily matter if it's scalable to a million people right now, because this is how it's best to serve our clients. And that's okay. Like we don't need to turn our nose up at really personalized service, especially when we're yeah. talking about something that means so much to people. So I want to commend you for holding strong in that besides like, I mean, I'm sure we peer pressured you at the time that we're like, girl, like, I don't know how much you're going to be able to do that, but it seems like it's working out really well. And your clients and your, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's patients or not the kiddos, everyone is benefiting from having that, that outreach to you. Yeah. And I think actually though, 
I mean, you did question it initially, but then when I explained too, like the intentionality in my pricing and how I structured things, I'm accounting for this time, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's often what we don't do is we're just like, oh yeah, someone can have access. That's where burnout comes because we're Mm -hmm. trying to maintain this really high volume. I don't have a huge, you know, therapy patient caseload. And this is very, very intentional. And I priced it in a way, yeah, these are concierge services. And, you know, I do now have a group option that is more of an accessible option. Some of these things are still built in, but it's it's a group community where parents can ask questions and learn from one another. So I think there still are ways to scale it. But I also think that we have to just if you want to do this, just proactively build it in, you know, and and conceptualize it. And what I will say, at least in my field, parents view it more as a safety net than they're actually using it. Um, and it's it's nice to know that they can tech their, text their child's provider. And like you said, I will say it doesn't look scalable on paper, but it actually is, one, my favorite part of my business. And two, it is it doesn't take that long in actuality. And so it's this motto, and I talk about this a lot in therapy, this idea of slowing down to speed up. Like I was saying with the behavior earlier, it's easy to be like, what's the solution? And I'm like, we're going to slow down. We're going to figure it out. When we put in this effort in between, like I'm doing it in between sessions, I will say we see so much faster progress because parents aren't having to update me on every single thing that happened that week. And I also think that relationship is built where they they know that they're supported. And so I think the quality of care just skyrockets as a result. Yeah, that's it's and those little things that come up along the way, like, I mean, I'm just kind of translating this over from like a hypothetical perspective, because I don't have experience in this. But those little things that come up along the way, they may not be something that they tell you if you're getting all the information at the beginning of a therapy session, but they could really inform the work that you're doing, which is so beautiful. Like, I mean, those little successes and things like that. Um, And I know that, you know, that's part of breaking the status quo, because if you've ever had a therapist of any part of your life. It's not always something that you can just go out on a limb and reach out for. Um, But when planning your business, this was something that was very intentional on your end. And you talk a little bit about, you know, the way that you might interview people that you're bringing in or you're staffing the business and looking into expansion. And so being such a high touch provider and given the, the type of work that you're doing, Can you talk a little bit about what you have considered through the process of expanding your team and becoming not just you in this, you know, in this field, building this on your own and what, you know, what you've considered to make sure that you don't lose those special parts of your business in hiring the next people that are coming in? Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to mind immediately, which is because of you and working with you, is everyone is W-2, you know, and that's really uncommon in the therapy and like psychology world is we're so used to thinking of, you know, independent contractors. And this is a methodology that I want, 
you know, all of the therapists on my team to carry forward. And it's a really high value. And so even from the get-go when they're part-time, we're onboarding as, you know, hourly W-2. Even my assistant is that way too because I want her to be fully integrated and getting the experience and growing with it. She works for me 20 hours right now, which has increased and will continue to increase too. Um, But I think that is a really huge, huge part. I also, I think interviewing people, it becomes important of like, what are their values and can they see the vision that I'm trying to create? Because at the end of the day, you know, this, this role isn't for everyone and I am okay with that. And I think it's about, and it's been a little slow if, and you know this Kira, like trying to find a psychologist, it has been a slower process, but again, slow down to speed up. I'm willing to, you know, focus on that to find the right person who really matches with the overall vibe. But I also, the other thing is like, and this is something too, to be completely forthcoming, I've had to play around with in terms of what am I paying these therapists? I, I, I probably won't go into all the details, but it's pretty common in the therapy world to do a split um, of like a percentage and, you know, talking about like that doesn't fully immerse them into the the process and the ecosystem and having them be part of it. That's more like an independent contractor model. But I, you know, so, but I've had to kind of be like, okay, where is that line where I, I mean, can be profitable. I don't want to, you know, lose money in this and all of that and like make sure I'm still paying myself for like all the CEO time, but at the same time giving them a a very competitive salary and benefits package and how do I balance that out? And sometimes I find it doesn't match on exactly to the percentages that, you know, are quote unquote ideal in the service-based industry world. And so it, it's it's playing around. And I will be honest, I'm constantly pivoting with this. But I, at the core, have my, my values and my mission of my business in mind when I am kind of playing around with different ways to do things. Yeah. And I think the point that you made inadvertently is one that we want people to take away from this podcast is, and in general in life, is that classifying your workers isn't always going to be about what's legal because there are many states where it is totally legal to classify your workers as 1099. But what you're looking for is, like you said, a holistic family approach, which means that they're learning your methodology, they're participating in your company culture, and they're basically becoming a part of your message and your innovation in this industry overall. So breaking the status quo does require you to break people in as members of your team that are representing your team in this way. And I think that this is just a really good example of how choosing that classification is really about what your business needs based on your overall goals. And it's not always just about what you're illegally allowed to do. You know, at the end of the day, like there's, you can adapt positions and, you know, things like that to fit into a certain type of classification if that's what you're prepared to do. But if you're thinking about your overall kind of like your whole business approach, I must say, <laughs> um, then we have to really think about what that looks like in regards to the involvement of your team members. Because you're doing yeah. something really different here, which means that when we hire contractors or 1099, and I'm just going to use this as a very vague example, but 
the point of a contractor at 1099 is that they're coming off the street, get to work, go home. That's why the hourly percentage works because you're not investing in them. You're not spending time educating them. They're not adapting their methods to what you want. Um, and that's why you kind of have to push this boundary a little bit. And sometimes, I mean, it makes sense. There are, there are cycles of hiring for professionals, like high level professionals, like the people that you're looking for that are 12 to 18 months long. So yeah, your assistant, it may take a few weeks to find them, but for, and that doesn't mean that they're less valuable or anything, but when you're finding these niche roles, it can take a really long time, which is why it's important to situate these things ahead of time so that you can really throw all your weight behind the decisions that you're making when you do find that person. Um, and I'm excited yeah. for that day for you, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's sooner rather than later, but you know, it's happening. But I think the thing that I can feel so confident in is the structure is there. And you know, that's thanks to paradigm of being able to really help <laughs> me envision it all. And I will say one other thing, because this was a high value for me, I am breaking status quo on the patient and family side, but I'm also breaking status quo in terms of my employees. And I, so this was something I had to factor in of what is their caseload going to look like, you know, and making sure they're not burning out. We, we went round and round about vacation. You know, I was mm -hmm. like, listen, I really want to do like one week a quarter. Like I want them to have a lot of time off because this is a high demand job and like that's important. And we had to kind of like keep thinking about like, how do we do this? How do we, one, make it legal, two, make it financial, and three, like make it make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And that was, it's interesting because that really is, it, it just reminds me of kind of HR's role in business and how it needs to change. Like we have all been trained that you can only do things in this one specific way. And it the thing is that just like any other business, if you want to be innovative, then you are taking on the burden of that innovation, which means that there aren't going to be automated systems out there that are going to do this for you. There isn't going to be a selection in your payroll system that says one week per quarter, you know, like it's just not something that you have to build, be aware of, be on top of and be intentional about. And, you know, on HR process side, it's really easy to see. But look at how that infiltrates into your culture. The chosen vacation isn't about the time that they're taking off. It's about what you want your culture to feel like, which still resonates with me. I mean, it's been almost a year, I think, since we initially kicked off. And I mean, that still resonates with me of like why it mattered to you. So can we talk just a little bit about burnout for our employees and how that resonated for you as a former therapist and where you came from in academia and why you wanted that to look different in your business? I'd love to inspire other business owners to kind of see how informing your own pathway for what you wanted to provide has really resonated in what you want your culture to be. Yeah, I think this is another perfect example of proactive and not reactive. But I think so often we think of burnout, it's a reactive thing of like, oh, well, what are we going to do about this? But we we know in our industry if this is something that commonly occurs. And so trying to think about measures that ultimately can help to support the prevention of it. And yes, there's going to be times I guarantee as an employer that I'm still going to have to be reactive at times, which then will shape, you know, what, what the process is. But I think at least giving intentionality to it. And I think, you know, in our, our modern day age, 
burnout is at the highest rate it's ever been. I don't have like data for that, but I will say just like connecting with people, being in the field that I'm in. And I really believe the reason is, is because we are a doer caller a doer culture, not a being culture. And so it's constantly, how do we do more, do more, do more? And nothing ever feels like it's enough. And so this can be a self-driven thing. You can get, I mean, it's amazing to to work with someone who's high achieving, but also those are the people that you need to watch out the most for are the ones that are like, yeah, what do you want me to do next? Okay. Yeah. I beat your deadline. You know, all of these things. And I think just being mindful of like this, do more culture is what's creating this pattern of burnout. And so when I think about designing a business, how do you begin to structure that in? And this was one thing when I said like one week a quarter, I don't want them, you know, yes, there will be some flexibility, but I don't want them saving all four weeks or, or, you know, potentially like not using it at all. Like, no, like this is part of our our company culture is you take time off and you're not working on that time off either. Like this isn't a time to get caught up on clinical documentation. If you're that behind in clinical documentation, we need to rework something. We need to figure out some sort of system. So I just think it's always being one step ahead, realizing the tendency to create burnout so easily and not putting it on the individual themselves, but rather putting it on your company's mission. Yeah. I mean, I know I've probably talked to you about this before, but burnout isn't just a thing that happens overnight. You know, I got diagnosed with PTSD as a result of burnout that had been building up for eight years. And it didn't just take me one panic attack and three months to get over it. It took years and years of therapy. And even during times of stress in my business, I can start to feel those feelings come back up. And I was just talking to another entrepreneur about this, is that we're all trained to kind of keep everything in ourselves and be the quiet one that checks things off the list and, you know, overachieves. And, you know, that's how we got here in the first place. But Mm -hmm. I think that if you create a culture like you have that acknowledges the the issue that acknowledges the existence and it doesn't look like a weakness, then we aren't going in on ourselves when we start to feel these things come up. But instead, we're actually seeking help outward. And I know there's this huge message of like, the problem is within you. But I think if you already are starting to feel a problem, I think that you need to go outside of yourself. And I mean, I guess that's the point of therapy in general. So you it's preaching to the choir here. But for yeah. other entrepreneurs, like you're not like gonna nobody's gonna give you an award for like being like the most stressed out, you know, like, and nobody's going to give you an award for quieting yourself down and, you know, like sitting in a corner and taking it all on yourself. And also nobody is going, your employees are not going to be like, oh, I'm really burned out. And then they're still going to perform in the same way. Like your culture, especially if you have a small team, your culture will be impacted by one person who's suffering from burnout because they will not be capable of showing up the best way that they can feeling as fulfilled, being as creative, caring as much as you want them to. So it really is your responsibility to talk about some of these things that have to do with mental health as an employer. Right. And I talk about on the parenting side that modeling is such an effective way to teach children 
This is true of all humans, though. Modeling is such an effective way to teach your employees. So what are you doing? How are you showing up? Because I think if they don't sense that it's safe to be able to say things are hard or they messed up because they don't see you doing it, they're not going to do it. And so there's been many times with my assistant, you know, where we do have these conversations. I'll sometimes even bring it back up with her of like, remember, like, You got to tell me if this is hard. I don't know if this is hard or you're confused unless you tell me. But then I also have no problem. There's been times, you know, maybe I had a short fuse that day and, you know, I'm like, oh, why'd you do that? And then I'm like, sorry, I overreacted there or I made a mistake there or I was unclear in my language there. And some people could say, you know, like, That's not the way that a relationship could be. I definitely still think that hierarchy is there, but it's built on this foundation of we're not going to be perfect. And I think if I'm trying to just like if I if I make a mistake and can't own up to it, that's going to teach her that she shouldn't own up to her mistakes if she makes them too. And sometimes I don't even know she makes mistakes because like that's the nature of delegating, right? But this is also Mm -hmm. how people learn and grow. Yeah. And I think you've also had to make some difficult hiring decisions, which in the interest of privacy, we're not going to get into that too much. But I know that a lot of times when we hire, we expect or hope that it's going to work out great the first time. And it's always very shocking to me that entrepreneurs can get very, they almost give up. They're like, oh, I try, I did it my best and I still, whatever. It's like, well, we can't control everything that people do. And it's okay to have there be a bump in the road when it comes to building your team. So yeah. can you kind of share some, I don't know, words of wisdom or encouragement for those that feel like they threw everything behind a hire that didn't work out and and kind of on the being on the other side of it and a little bit of inspiration there? Yeah. I think that one of the things is having the difficult conversations and having them early are really, really important. Um, I will say I struggled. So basically I had one assistant and the assistant just wasn't a good fit for my business and what I was needing. I learned in the interview process where I, I didn't clarify some information and I made assumptions on my end, which didn't align with their expectations. Um, but I think, you know, I knew pretty quickly it wasn't working. Of course, I wanted to give a chance, but there was probably a week where I was like, this isn't going to work. And it was still uncomfortable to sit with that. But doing it earlier, I think, and having those tough conversations becomes really important. But the other thing, and this maybe sounds, um, I don't know, like what you wouldn't expect, but I would say throw yourself into it again. You know, like unless you're giving yourself fully to this, you're never going to find the right person for your business. And yeah, there's going to be mistakes. And it's funny, when we were talking before we hit record, we said this was one of the things too with regard to like neurodiversity is, yeah, you're going to make mistakes there too, right? But those mistakes shouldn't dictate our future action in terms of like holding ourselves back because that doesn't actually help us to progress and grow. So I did. I threw myself back in. I kind of went at it at a different approach too of where I was looking for this person, how I was interviewing this person. And 
found an incredible assistant who like really, really fits in with the company culture and gets the vision and all of that. So I I do think it's continuing to throw yourself in and just realizing, yeah, not everything's going to turn out perfect in that way. Yeah. And I think embracing that is really part of understanding that people are not meant to be controlled by you. They're meant to rise up with your guidance and support. And if they don't, it doesn't mean they're a failure. It just means that that's not where they're supposed to be. So you're not a failure either by bringing someone in. It's actually much better if you say, I gave you everything I could and it's just not clicking for us and I'm not going to try to control you. Like that's not your job as a leader. Like you're you're really not supposed to be the best person of controlling other people. Like that's that would just be like another impossible task that yeah. would just make everybody really mad. Um, so we talked about this a little bit, but just to close out, I wanted to make sure that we're equipping all of our employers with the language that they maybe some shoulds and should nots when it comes to maybe approaching some of these topics with um, employees that have either divulged to you that they have neurodivergence or or that they are neurodivergent, even little things like that. Like, what are we supposed to say? Like, and what should we not say? And is there like, I just want to discourage people from saying like, I don't know how to say this. So I'm just going to say whatever I want. Like, I feel like yeah. I just want like, can we just be a little more sensitive? And again, go back in the episode and listen to some of those examples that you gave on how to talk to employees and things like that. But just kind of like a Cliff's Notes version of like things to keep in mind when you're communicating with employees who may be exhibiting some of these neurodivergent behaviors. Like, I don't even know if yeah. that's the right thing to say, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> And I think it is nerve-wracking, right? And I think some of it is, again, going back, asking the individual. But what I will say as a whole is there has been a really huge shift, and this has been in my field, but it's mirrored like culture, is it used to be what we call person-first language, and we've shifted to what's called identity-first language. Person-first language, like I would say child with autism all the time. I like learn in my graduate training. That's always how you do it, you know? And now what we hear from the autistic community and really the neurodivergent you know, community, broadly speaking, is identity first language is what the large majority of neurodivergent individuals prefer. So what this means is neurodivergent individual, you know, neurodivergent person, autistic person, autistic child. So you might have heard as I was talking about my practice, you know, that's the type of language that I am using. So I think that's helpful. Um, I think it can get confusing, the difference between like, neurodiversity is this understanding that all brains think different. And then under that umbrella, we have neurotypical, which is usually like the quote unquote, like standard that we're used to in our culture. And neurodivergence often is referring to people that aren't neurotypical. And this usually is associated with some sort of, you know, disability that's been identified. Autism, ADHD, a learning disability, an intellectual disability, you know, you name it. Um, And then I think that, you know, one of the things is just this holistic understanding of not parsing apart someone's neurodivergence from who they are. So when you're talking with employees, it's not like, oh, that's your ADHD. And it's like you're you're giving them like negative feedback or that's your autism. It's like, no, it it all is this conceptualization of that is how their brain is wired. And I think coming at it from more 
more of this holistic approach, not this that this neurodivergence or this autism or ADHD or whatever is separate from them. It's part of who they are and how their brain is wired. And so it always is going to be coming into play. And so I think just being aware of like, you know, like in general too, not giving these like broad generalities that you read and making an assumption that your employee experiences that. Like hyper-focus is a really hot topic right now in the ADHD world and like not being like, oh yeah, so people with ADHD, you know, um, or ADHDers is the way you can use identity first language there. Um, they all have hyper-focus. So how come you're not hyper-focusing at work? You know, something mm-hmm. like that. But even that just assumption, they might not have hyper-focus. And I, we want to make sure that we're just not making these assumptions too. That's so funny. We had our team meeting right before this and two of us, including me, have ADHD. And as we're talking about this, we were talking about hyper-focus because this isn't this isn't even something I was planning on talking about, but it just goes right along with this as an example and how like I was getting annoyed because I I definitely have those moments of hy- hyper-focus where I like dive into something and I know everything about it. And then my algorithms are feeding me more and more information about it. And I get frustrated when people don't, they assume I don't know anything or they assume that I don't know about sports or I don't know about, you know, random things that are not the typical white girl norm, I guess. And I'm like, no, I had a hyper focus about that. Like I know almost everything there is to know about F1 racing. <laughs> like it's just I like, it. you know, and, and then my, my, my cohort, my employee, who has ADHD, she was like, that's so funny because I don't have that at all. Like I never go off on a hyper-focused tangent. Like if anything, like my main thing is I forget, like I have to watch things again and again because I forgot like what the whole series was about or whatever. Um, And she'll be listening to this episode and dying because this is literally right after our meeting. But I think that just goes to show you, like I'm not going to go and assign her tasks, assuming she's going to be able to hyper-focus on it. Also, I only hyper-focus on stuff that I've decided that I've cared about that day. So Like making a a generality is just like not acknowledging the divergence amongst the community. And I just, I don't, hey, Abby, like go hyper-focus on this for two months and like get really, really good at it so that our team can benefit from it. Like that is not what we are saying to do here. (laughs) Like that is definitely not it. Um, But Taylor, thank you so much. I mean, it's just always so much fun to talk to you. And now, you know, we've gotten to talk on your podcast. And so if you really like this episode and you want to dive in a little bit deeper and you, um, maybe you have a child with autism or you are neurodivergent and you want to feel seen and heard and this conversation was interesting to you, please go listen to Taylor's podcast. But tell everybody where to find you and how to send your reels to people that may need your services and how to reach out to you and how to get that really personalized care that they don't have to advocate to death for. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I love spending time, you know, I'm on all the social media platforms, but I would say my hub is Instagram. Um, You know, love, my entire page is focused on, you know, providing parents and pediatricians largely, you know, more information about neurodivergent affirming approaches for kids in particular under the autism lens. Um, But Instagram is the uh, Dr. Tay with periods in between. So the period DR period Tay. Um, And like I said, I love creating content. I talk about the podcast there and everything. But if people are interested in my services, and I think that would be, you know, I know Kira, you're 
really big on referrals. I will say a huge, huge backbone of my business is referrals as well. So if you are thinking of someone who could benefit from these type of services, please connect them with me. Um, So my email is just taylor at drtaylorday.com, which is also my website, drtaylorday.com, although it's currently in the process of getting revamped and I'm really excited. Um, But Mm. I do offer free consult calls if, you know, families are needing more support, want to see if there's an opportunity to work with me. But honestly, a lot of times I have no problem being like, you know, I – you know, I'm not the best fit for you in one way or another, but helping them connect to another provider as well. Um, and so that's just right now it's um, drtay.as.me um, and they can book a free consult call there. That's amazing. We'll include all the links in the show notes, but um, I know that most of our audience is going to know someone that could benefit from hearing from you. And so I just can't encourage you enough to like pop over to our page, make sure you click on those resources. We'll also share a bunch of taste stuff when this episode comes out. Um, So make sure that you're sharing that because I think it's really important that we all play a role in changing the status quo of how our kiddos are being treated and how parents are being heard. So thank you so much for being here and thanks everyone for listening. If you're listening to this, you've stuck with me for this entire episode. And for that, I say thank you. I hope you found as much value in this week's topic as I do. If so, be sure to follow, rate, and review on the Up and Up podcast. You'll be helping others find the fun in HR too. Follow us on social media and join us next Wednesday for your weekly dose of On the Up and Up.